other became well known after the Vietnam War. But our guest today, Eric Dean Jr., tells us it was no stranger to Civil War veterans. We'll find out how and where he learned about this when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Is writing your passion? Is finding and honing your craft your goal? Come celebrate the art, craft, and business of writing with some of the most successful writers in the country at the 6th Annual La Jolla Writers Conference this October 20th through 22nd in San Diego. Have you been working hard at your writing? Are you in need of the energy boost a great conference provides? Do you want to self-publish but feel intimidated by the maze you need to negotiate to do so? Whether you're an aspiring or advanced writer, whether you write fiction or nonfiction, whether you're looking to publish through a major house or self-publish, you will learn with the best at the La Jolla Writers Conference. Exceptional and uniquely accessible faculty, varied genres, small classes for fiction and nonfiction writers, an aspiring setting, and the chance to participate in read and critique classes with renowned agents and editors set this conference apart. Ready to jumpstart your career? Then join us this October. Come see why the La Jolla Writers Conference was chosen by Writers Digest magazine as a conference well worth your money. The 6th Annual La Jolla Writers Conference, this October 20 through 22. Check us out at LaJollaWritersConference.com or call us at 858-467-1978. See you in San Diego this October. And in between, put your pen to the paper or your fingers to the keyboard and write. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and my guest today is Eric T. Dean, Jr., author of Shook Over Hell, Post-Traumatic Stress, Vietnam, and the Civil War. And we're talking about the the effects of the war, psychological effects of the Civil War on its veterans, a subject that had not been explored before this book was published in the late 1990s. Uh, we've carried with us mental images of the veterans uh, celebrating uh, Decoration Day, Memorial Day, battlefield reunions, uh, various uh, uh, parades, uh, old men uh, in grainy black and white movies embracing at Gettysburg in 1913. And in fact, the phenomenon of, of post-traumatic stress was not just born in modern wars, but is something that dates back to, uh, doubtless to the earliest wars, and certainly was a factor in the American Civil War. Eric, you mentioned you, you started learning about this or finding evidence about this in the uh, the archives of the state of Indiana where mental health records uh, of a certain age were accessible to you. Did you look at, uh, did this get you started looking at soldiers from other states once you got the Indiana records uh, covered? I eventually did. Um, 
I think I wanted to, I eventually looked at states like uh, Ohio, South Carolina. Um, I went up to Michigan, looked at their archives, um, visited Illinois. So I think all, the, all I visited, I think, about ten states, a few more than that, before my research was done. But the one thing I wanted to attempt to do was uh, get a sample. Um, my first seminar paper that I mentioned to you, I spent one semester on. I actually went out to D.C. and looked at the National Archives and discovered Civil War pension records, which, of course, are an amazing and remarkable source of information. And I was able to put together a pretty provocative uh, paper based on that. But I wanted to try to get some kind of global feel, you know, get some sense of uh, Indiana veterans, how many had these problems, and attempt to figure out, uh, you know, what percentage of the whole had these difficulties. So I think my effort was really focused on getting a sample from Indiana. And so what I did is I went through the mental health records, uh, the insane asylum records from, uh, you know, 1860 through 1920, and believe it or not, made a complete list of every male that was admitted uh, who would have been anywhere from, I think, 12 years old to 70 years old during the Civil War era and then matched it up with the muster rolls and then went off to the National Archives to see if I could find a pension record. So it was just... Uh, it probably takes an obsessive personality like myself to even embark on a project like that. Uh, it was just painstaking and took so many hours in the archives. Of course, any historian with a Ph.D. can can sympathize with that experience. That's that is how how the work gets done. And what did you come up with? Any any kind of number? Any kind of uh, reasonably firm number or percentage? Unfortunately, in the final analysis, I had to say that. Uh, it was difficult to, to make any kind of global assessment. And I think just to try to give you a sense of the landscape at the time, the problem was, well, first of all, the problem is for Vietnam veterans, you can go interview, you know, a 1,000 veterans and then figure out how many of them are having problems and mm-hmm. assess the percentage. The problem with Civil War veteran, as with any historical research, all the subjects are dead, so you can't actually line up a sample and talk to everybody. So you have no sense for the people that were fine and never had any difficulty. It's impossible to to um, to talk to them and get an assessment of their problems. So you're really looking for the pathology, you know, the people who had difficulty. And once you do locate these people, there's no. It's, it's very difficult to get a sense of what percentage of the whole they constitute. And another just uh, infuriating thing about the 19th century is. First of all, you don't have real complete record keeping. The insane asylum records themselves were very in transition and flux constantly. You, you start out in the 1860s with essentially a big, gigantic register uh, where entries are made and maybe a short note, a few lines on each case, and that evolves over time. And then by the, I think it was the 1880s or so, you get local inquest reports that are interesting. They, they can be anywhere from four to eight pages of material. But it changes all the time. You know, the categories weren't static. Today we have something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual regarding psychological or psychiatric illness. And the the goal of psychologists and psychiatrists has been to establish very stable categories of, um, you know, mental problems. And so it's easy to compare over time because people will fit into a diagnostic category. But back in the 19th century, you're really dealing with... Um, categories and record keeping that is very inconsistent 
And I found for the Civil War veterans, a lot of, uh, quite a few veterans went, ended up in the hospital, no doubt about that. But I also discovered that a lot of veterans, uh, were, were kept by their families. I think the families that had any kind of financial means at all, if they had uh, a veteran come home and develop problems, couldn't sleep, couldn't concentrate, couldn't work, they would, uh, they would try to keep the person at home. Um, even when the person was violent, I mean, some families would, work out an arrangement where they would make a so-called strong room that is a, a secure room that could be locked up and the person inside couldn't get out and they would take care of a person at home. And then some veterans who uh, came from poorer families would end up in the local poorhouse. Um, as long as they weren't violent, they weren't threatening anybody, either themselves or others, they would just be kept uh, you know, at the local poor farm. So they wouldn't end up in the um, insane asylum. And Generally, the poorhouse wouldn't have any kind of uh, permanent records you can access. So I got the sense, you know, even though I did an exhaustive review of the uh, the insane asylum records, that I was just looking at a very small percentage of the overall problems. But you, you can't really project in any kind of scientific or objective way um, how big the numbers were. So in the final analysis, I had to say that um, from everything I looked at, there's no doubt that you have post-traumatic stress occurring in Civil War soldiers and veterans. No question about that. And the symptoms are just striking and classic. But well, it's difficult to, to make an assessment. And I might add, even for the Vietnam veteran, there's an ongoing fight as to how many veterans were affected by post-traumatic stress disorder. I think some advocates want to put the number at 25 30%. Other people claim it's more like 10 15%. Some people want to put it at more like 5%. So... Even today, when you can actually speak to people and get a live interview and, and look at them and make a clinical assessment, it's still extraordinarily difficult to, to um, come up with a firm number. But the, the, the underlying finding, and the one that really makes this worth studying, is, is simply to acknowledge that the problem did exist, that in, in uh, those who would take a more romanticized view of the war, uh, w would not find a place in, in that view for people suffering all kinds of, of mental health symptoms long after the war. And, and your research confirms they do exist. They did exist. What about the, the state of mental health uh, practice in the period you're looking at? It's not that many decades prior to this that the first asylums are even being built, that, that, that mental disorders go from being... Uh, criminalized to, to 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 health problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one problem. The 19th century was a very dynamic century for mental health. Uh, I think it's around the end of the 18th century, around 1800, that you first have uh, the reformers, later people like Dorothea Dix and, and various people. You know, they would go into dungeons and see where insane so-called insane people were just locked up and just put away for the rest of their life without any treatment. They were viewed as sometimes, uh, you know, possessed by demons, that kind of thing. So there was a definite movement to medicalize uh, mental health problems that started around 1800, and you have in England and the U.S. sort of uh, parallel movement. So you get uh, in the 1840s, 1850s, each state is building an insane asylum, and the first, um, the first view of the matter was extremely optimistic. Uh, the so-called moral reform, the idea of reformers like Dorothea Dix, were that if you built a 
an insane asylum and you put it in a quiet place where people could be removed from a stressful environment and given good food and nice quiet, peace and quiet, could listen to music, read, uh, that they would get better. And at first, uh, some of these reformers just had wildly optimistic assessments. They would say, oh, you know, 80, 90% of people could be returned to a normal state, which didn't turn out to be true. And then you get towards the end of the century, you get different ideas coming in with Darwin, uh, the idea of things determined by heredity. Uh, you get a very pessimistic view of, of mental health, and that is that people with problems, it's probably all predetermined and genetically uh, you know, conditioned so that there's no way you can cure people. So you go from extreme optimism to extreme pessimism. And one thing that com- com- completely confounds the situation is the fact that the neurology and um, medical science were in their infancy in the 19th century. So you get a lot of problems like, say, Alzheimer's disease, uh, which were poorly understood. And you also get uh, neurological conditions like syphilis, which, of course, was a huge problem in the 19th century. And you have people presenting, uh, you know, in kind of a deranged mental state. And it's not always clear what the problem is. It could be Alzheimer's, some kind of dementia, or it could be, uh, you know, an environmentally conditioned um, neurosis, say, from, from battle, from witnessing violence. So the 19th century, you get so many things going on. It isn't until you get into the, you know, the 20th century that, um, you know, our, our current uh, analytical framework emerges. And also medical science becomes so sophisticated in the 20th century, so neurological disease uh, is, is separated out and treated differently. It's not confused with a mental disease. What were the, the kind of symptoms that the, the Civil War veterans showed in the, the cases you looked at, the, the ones who seemed to have been affected by battle? Well, the ones that um, tie in most closely to the uh, what we think of with the Vietnam veteran, um, you have people coming home. The first thing, sometimes they, they came home and they were just completely normal, seemed fine. Of course, particularly Union veterans and even Confederate veterans with the lost cause were greeted with a great deal of enthusiasm. They were welcomed home uh, with open arms and greeted as heroes uh, in the North particularly, but even the South. So some of these guys came home and seemed fine, and it was just over time that they seemed to be troubled. Um, sometimes they would talk about their experience. Uh, sometimes it emerged in the form of uh, sort of involuntary behaviors, like having nightmares and, and just being suddenly talking about the war. You have veterans who suddenly say that, uh, you know, they're coming, they're about to attack, and the people look at them like, my God, what's the, what's the problem with this guy? So some people, the, you do, it's definitely a delayed stress situation. They came home, they were fine, and later they de- their mental condition deteriorated. But you also have men coming home, uh, and their relatives would see them first thing and just be startled. They would say frequently that the person was... Uh, um, just a shell of their former self, that they, you know something terrible had happened, they were no longer the same. And one other thing that you have to consider with the Civil War that's not true with the 20th or the 21st century wars is that um, the physical condition of so many returning veterans was terrible. Uh, you know, there, as any Civil War scholar knows, you have, for every battle death, you have two deaths from disease. And even the guys that survived frequently came home in, in very poor physical health. And um, I think that exacerbated the situation. You get, I mean, 
if you have a mental problem and you're also physically worn down, it, it tends to uh, exacerbate it. So you have a lot of guys that come back just in poor condition in general, and, the, and then their physical condition deteriorates. And I would see uh, see cases of uh, of guys that just um, they came back, they were okay, but they couldn't concentrate, couldn't get a job, uh, and then they start wandering around. Would frequently use alcohol, become uh, alcoholics, and that's something you see with Vietnam veterans too. The so-called self-medicating uh, a mental problem to try to escape disturbing memories, uh, and then it would just get worse and worse. There's um... This is, I guess, uh, be connected to alcohol addiction. Uh, uh, a song by Michelle Schacht, uh, sort of uh, alternative folk singer type person, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a, a new set of lyrics for the old fiddle tune "Soldier's Joy" about a Confederate veteran who suffers an amputation, but is given the uh, the, the opiates necessary to cope with it, mm. and becomes addicted. and And he's singing the song. There's a, there's also a country song. Uh, with the same, very same theme of, of Civil War veterans addicted to drugs that they first took, uh, were first administered uh, in hospital. Did you oh, yeah. come across much uh, drug addiction? Oh, definitely. I, I think um, the use of opium, I'm trying to remember the exact terminology, I think it was frequently referred to as a soldier's disease in the 19th century because so many soldiers, um, well, opiates were frequently, were freely used. They weren't really regulated tightly by the um federal government until I think it's about 1914, 1916. I'm trying to remember. I think it was called the Harrison Act, which first brought all opiates under um, strict control. So up until the end of the 19th century, anybody from a Civil War veteran to uh, just about anybody could go to a, a drug store or somebody selling drugs and, and get opiates. And, of course, a lot of these soldiers, uh, frequently from physical wounds, you know, during the war they were treated with opium and just became uh, uh, addicted, opiates, and that continued. So I definitely found uh, cases of drug abuse uh, as well as alcoholism. It was fairly common. Hard to put an exact number on it. I think some scholars are working on that now. But, of course, you see the same thing with the Vietnam veteran. A lot of their um, their drug use uh, was attributed to the war to bad memories and difficulty of readjusting. So you definitely see the same thing in the 19th century, no question. So you've got uh, addiction to drugs and alcohol. You've got failure to concentrate or focus, loss of memory, uh, depression. Uh, flashbacks are another thing we, we associate with the Vietnam veteran, uh, or, or for that matter, all, all uh, uh, war veterans, I can recall, stories of World War II veterans uh, you know, dropping to the sidewalk when a car backfires. Uh, yeah, sort of a conditioned oh. response. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing um, I think there's a civil, there's a World War II documentary. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was done by John Huston, the famous director. Uh, I think that the name is Let There Be Light, and he actually went. This was before he became famous and went to Hollywood. I think he was working for the army at the time, and he actually went into mental hospitals and filmed some of the veterans uh, from World War II. And it's just it's just shocking to see some of this footage. I mean, you have people who, you know, were in the Pacific or the Iwo Jima and places like that, and they're just shaking, just shaking uncontrollably. Uh, they 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 can't. And then they just there's this obsessing about certain acts of violence which they saw people killed in front of their eyes. And I think uh, the World War II, we were just we didn't get the same um, exposure that we did after Vietnam to the problems, which were very real. 
Well, we'll come back and talk about this some more. We're talking with Eric Dean, author of Shook Over Hell, Post-Traumatic Stress, Vietnam, and the Civil War. And we'll return with more of the subject on Civil War Talk Radio.